Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rob's Revisions. I am Rob Liefeld. I have uh, drawn and illustrated and written comic books for the last 34 years. Uh, Youngblood, X-Force, Deadpool, Cable, Domino, uh, Captain America, The Avengers, Hawk and Dove. I, I love comic books. I love making comic books, talking comic books, participating in comic books consuming comic books and that is what Rob's observations is all about this week we are gonna bite into a juicy topic that there is no way we will um encompass everything that we need to do in this installment because this is a big multi uh part subject matter that we can cover in bite-sized pieces along the way and that is the subject of crossovers crossovers M marvel dc both in the 80s entered this world of uh this bigger world of multi-inner company crossovers and they never look back the once these left uh the barn once these horse were, were off and racing there was no putting them back uh, and we have been galloping on them as an industry ever since they changed everything about comic books comic book marketing they uh were uh, uh, an important part of giving publishers control, control of the product that they were putting out and uh, in a way that they had not maybe previously experienced. And, and, and because these were so successful, this became a, a, a way that they could revisit these crossover concepts and, and continue to market and give you events that you would need to participate in. They throw their marketing budgets and, and, and advertising dollars at you in an effort to convince you that this was something that you had to be a part of, no matter who the creative team, no matter who the creator. See, we are coming out of a period in the late from the late 70s, mid-70s, into the 80s, as I have covered here time and again, where creators were at the helm. You've heard these names. I'm going to say them again. Jim Starlin, Frank Miller, George Perez, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Howard Shakin. These were the seminal creators. Marv Wolfman. These guys were the movers and shakers. They were giving you the comics that you loved. Uh, they, they would go into a title. They would do the work. They would fix up, you know, remodel the franchise. Frank Miller, Daredevil, Walt Simonson, Thor, John Byrne, X-Men, and Fantastic Four, George Perez, Titans. These guys, these artistic visions. If you know... And realize that I harp on the artists a lot. So many of the seminal works were done by writer-artists, artist-writers, guys who could draw and write. And really, the, the, the results speak for themselves. We've covered it. Um, Electra, Beta Ray Bill, you know, Alpha Flight, uh, The Titans, Cyborg, Raven. These were, these were visual components that attracted you because comic books is a visual medium. Dark Knight, Ronin. These are books that wowed you because of what you were looking at, that the artwork from these comics goes for insane amounts of money because we are a comic book industry. Comic books are about graphics and visual storytelling. I haven't seen a script by an author go for anywhere near uh, what a page of John Byrne's Uncanny X-Men will go for or Frank Miller's Daredevil will go for or Walt Simonson's Thor. We are an art-driven uh, uh, industry, and, and I never looked back, and I never forgot about that. I haven't forget, forgotten about it. My, my projects are always visually based. And look, 
that what that is again the language of this business of this art form a buddy of mine the other day said rob i'm feeling guilty man i'm really into my comics you know i've, I've really returned it to, to the comics it feels childish i go it's not childish it's art what this is art comic books is art we are reveling in art but sometimes the art and the artists get tired the canvases aren't as fresh and in this case as some of these guys were, were, were nearing a, a, a decade of, of really pushing it as hard as they possibly could, uh, the, the books were becoming less interesting. I can tell you the least interesting period for me in my consumption of comic books is around 1983 through 1987, 88. I could even push it to 89. Comics had become the most uninteresting they had become to me at any time because the art and the artist's were relaxing. They were taking sabbaticals. They weren't showing up. They weren't doing regular series. They were doing mini series every few years, and it just wasn't as exciting to me. Uh, my favorite guys were kind of. Uh, it, it's it's like when you know Joe Montana is is going from the Niners to the Kansas City Chiefs, and you know he's playing out the the last you know years on his on his abilities as a quarterback. We've all seen whether it's the Dan Marinos, the Dan Fouts the Joe Montanas, the Troy Aikmans, and even now we're, you know, looking at the twilight of Tom Brady. You, you you turn on ESPN, you turn on Fox Sports, they're debating, you know, how much more does Brady have in the tank? Even a guy like Cam Newton, you blink and you're like, have you been around almost a decade? Is your best behind you? The, you know, these shows are driven by the debate of, can this guy, you know, deliver still? Can this guy deliver still? Are they long in the tooth? Some of these artists, these creators, they went really hard and really long, and uh, gave us tremendous bodies of work, and then they started to go into what I kind of uh, view as almost a, a semi-retirement mode, and, 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 and again, you're not getting 12 issues anymore, you're getting four issues out of your favorite talent, and they're still good, but they're nowhere near uh, the peak uh, production that they used to be at. I mean, I, I've spoken in other in other podcasts, a guy like a Todd McFarlane was giving you monthly comics up until about 1993 and to the best of my ability. And, and he has not done a monthly, like two issues, a three issue run in 25 years. He, um, is, is no longer producing comics. You, you get maybe a cover. He inks some people from, from time to time, uh, a guy who was tearing it up in the nineties, Dale Keown, he drew the Hulk, then he drew the pit. And then he really has vanished and doesn't do uh, anywhere near a monthly body of work, you know, issue to issue to issue. And uh, he doesn't even do like five. You can't count on some of these guys to do three issues a year, much less five issues a year. And this is definitely the period that we were in in this period in the 80s. And what happened, a couple of really happenstance kind of coincidences, coincidences occurred uh that gave us these crossovers that I compare the crossover giving the control to the publishers who couldn't control the talent ever and now less so because the talent wasn't even around to inspire, manipulate, motivate, pick pick whatever word you want. The studio system in Hollywood shifted. They they did not know what consumers wanted. This has been written about raging bulls um, uh, easy, easy writers, raging bulls, the, the, these great, these great books on Hollywood that, uh, that dictate the rise of 
of the auteur, which was the Martin Scorsese, the Francis Ford Coppola, the George Lucas, the, the Steven Spielberg, um, the, the, these uh, guys rose because the studios didn't know what anybody wanted. And they certainly didn't think people wanted The Godfather. We've all read how everybody at Paramount thought The Godfather was too dark. This, this is too dark. You can't see. Turn the lights on. Why don't you turn the lights on? Why is everything filmed so dark? Coppola has gone on and on about the doubts about his um, about about the, the, that the studio had about Godfather, and suddenly it comes out. It's it's beloved. It's it's celebrated. It's acclaimed. It's it's up for all sorts of awards. It's it's a giant money maker. I mean, Coppola in in the documentary talks about how he would go down to his mailbox once a week. Uh, in the middle of the Godfather run and get million dollar checks once a week because that's the kind of revenue that um, the Godfather was uh, was 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 generating. The book is Easy Riders Raging Bulls. I'm pretty sure it's a great book. I've read it like three times. Uh, I used to read it on flights. I'd read it New York to L.A., L.A. to New York. I just I bought it the day it came out in the 90s because these are the guys that inspired me. Martin Scorsese. Nobody thought Taxi Driver or Raging Bull was gonna work. And and we've detailed how, I mean, George Lucas was beat down. They thought Star Wars was going to be a flop, right? And and Jaws was plagued with all sorts of problems. And, and the, the shark broke and the weather was terrible and they had to keep going back. And everybody at Universal thought it was just going to tank. And suddenly, boom, Jaws is a giant blockbuster. And so these guys were the producers of so many hits from like 1973 to 1983 but then we got formulas. We got blockbuster formulas and the rise of the producers who, who'd be like, oh, you like that 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 movie about that that guy who's a who's a patriot who flies a jet? Well, here here's six more movies about a patriot who 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 flies a jet. Oh, you like buddy cop movies? You you, you like you like uh, you like the buddy cop? Well, here's ten buddy cop movies. Okay, um, that is suddenly what was driving Hollywood. You know, oh, one year. In, in case you aren't aware of this, and we'll segue back into the. The, the, the comic books, but you need to understand that, that this mindset in Hollywood, hey, we've got comedies where the young guy turns into an old guy. Into an old guy. And when I was a kid, it was Freaky Friday. And uh, I believe it's Jodie Foster switches bodies with the older, the mom, and the, the mom becomes the teenager, the teenager becomes the, the mom, and it's hijinks. Hijinks ensue, right? Okay? So in the same calendar, in 12 months, we got... um. I think like Father Like Son, which which was a Kirk Cameron vehicle, the number one star on growing on TV's Growing Pains with with Arthur's Dudley Moore. You got like Father Like Son. You got I think uh, sixteen again, fifteen again, whatever it's called, eighteen again. It had uh, I think it had George, George Burns in it. Then you had uh, you had a another one with Jud, Judge Reinhold. I forget what that was called, but he switched with his kid, and then the 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 mother load the the one that oh my gosh everybody freaked out at was big big came last and it was the biggest it was the brightest it was the most celebrated it was the best done it was the best executed but man you got four movies about teens switching with adults i think the judge reinhold one has fred savage too i'm shooting in the dark here but i know there was four of them they all came out within the same year you you saw like meteor movies you know space mission movies Hollywood loves to franchise a concept and then go, well, we can repackage this and give it to you multiple times. And that is the rise of the Uber producer who went to the studio head and said, look, man, you like guys in tanks? I can give you five movies about guys in tanks. Okay. Um, look, we saw Die Hard, uh, Guy, you know, one man versus a bunch of people in an isolated building became one man versus a bunch of terrorists in an airport, became a cook, 
a Navy cook against terrorists on, on a boat. Um, they then, you know, turned that with Steven Seagal into a sequel uh, on a train. You had Wesley Snipes in Passenger 57, you know, terrorists on a plane. It became the one guy versus everybody in isolated places. That is exactly what I'm talking about. When the studios have control, they go, well, I can, I, I can do that. Oh, they gave you a train, I can give you a plane. They gave you a building, I can give you a boat. Uh, you know, I mean, all sorts of different variations on a theme. So, crossovers. Where'd they come from? How'd they happen? The first crossover event that I recall, it, it, the biggest of these we're going to get to is Secret Wars. It is the most resonant, the most successful. Um, but in 1982, we start and it is billed on the, again, here on the back of their collection. I remember seeing the advertising, being very excited. I actually think this is very influential on DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths. This particular very first Marvel miniseries. It says Marvel's first miniseries. An event so big it required every superhero that Earth contained. Time and again, the Grandmaster sets heroes against heroes in cosmic games with billions of lives at stake. This was called Marvel Superheroes Contest of Champions. Marvel Superheroes Contest of Champions, baby. This one was phenomenal. But, and it, it did just that. The, the cover to Marvel Superhero Contest of Champions, number one, has Hulk, Thing, Human Torch, Submariner, Iron Man, Dazzler, because she was an A-lister. Dazzler, at this time she was. Captain America, Daredevil, Reed Richards, Moon Knight, Scarlet Witch, Black Bolt, Angel, Wolverine. And it had a ton of their international characters. Shamrock. And you and you had, uh, you know, um, th th there was just Marvel had spent the better part of a several years, especially in the Hulk, the, the, the writer of this contest, Marvel's Contest of Champions, Bill Mantlo, had created a lot of these characters in the pages of the Hulk. And uh, this was a huge, huge event. And putting all these characters, they were international characters that he created, Shamrock, Talisman. Um, I mean, just so many of these characters that were created that would combine to team up with the finest superheroes in Marvel's Contest of Champions. So we now have the Contest of Champions. All of Marvel's popular superheroes are assembled with their international heroes that Bill Mantlo it has been uh, creating over the course of several of the books that he's done. And they have, like, Dark Star is a Russian hero. And this is very important that you know all this. Uh, you got Talisman and an African Shaman. Um, you've got from France, Le Peregrine. Um, Sorry, I, Aust Talisman is from Australia. You have Defensor from Argentina. You've got Shamrock from Northern Ireland. Sabra from Israel. I love Sabra. The People's Republic of China gave us the collective man. Of course, Saudi Arabia would give us the Arabian Knight. He looked exactly like Sinbad from every Sinbad movie. He is on a flying carpet. Marvel already had Captain Britain. The Indians were represented with the Indian-American hero Red Wolf. Okay, uh, Japan had Sunfire. So you've got all these characters being gathered. And when they are gathered, there is an amazing double-page spread. John Romita Jr., uh, had been doing Iron Man and knocking it out of the park, and it was fabulous. And here he is teamed with one of the finest embellishers that doesn't get enough praise, 
but whether it was John Byrne, George Perez, or John Romita Jr., he would always bring his best. His name was Pablo Marcus. Pablo Marcus. Uh, just some of the best stories had his inks on them. And he is now inking John Romita Jr. over Bill Mantlo's story for Contest of Champions. They are all summoned. They are all gathered in this gigantic, endless, intergalactic hangar to be informed that they are all going to be the subject of a giant game that will be played by Marvel's cosmic, uh, really, we, we know them now as kind of titans uh, as, as it's gone further along, but Grandmaster is a giant, you know, cosmic entity in Marvel, and he is going to pick uh, a team and pit his team against his competitors, and he is um, playing against other cosmic entities, each who have basically, just like when you go to the yard and you pick, time, pick teams for your squad, he is battling the unknown, okay? The unknown. And uh, the unknown was this, this unknown cosmic entity. Giant. He looks like the Grim Reaper. He's got a giant purple hood, no face. And um, Grandmaster is going to set up this uh, giant you know, battle across three issues. This is a miniseries. And different teams face off. So, you know, in, in, the, in round one, you had Daredevil, you had Talisman from Australia, you had uh, Darkstar from Russia against Japan's Sunfire, Invisible Girl from the Fantasy Four, and Iron Fist. So that, that, those were two teams, Unknown's team versus Grandmaster's team. And you guys, this is how it would go. It's, it's your favorite superheroes are fighting all throughout this. Round two, just so you know, had She-Hulk, Captain Britain, the Defensor. From uh, from Argentina against Sabro from is from from Israel, uh, you had the Arabian Knight and Iron Man. So this is how they all pick each other off. They all battle at the end. Whoever's standing, the award is given to either the Grandmaster or this cosmic entity known as the Unknown. So this was three issues. It's full on superhero fights. 1982, June, July, August. But where did it come from? Why now? And why was it Marvel's first super? Why was it Marvel's first miniseries? Well, trust me, this would this would just open the door. This would open the floodgates. You don't hear as much about Contest of Champions. It's been collected. It's it's just top draw quality Marvel um, fun at its very best. It's splashy. It's action packed. It's superhero versus superhero. Every issue, superheroes versus superheroes. You get your favorite heroes. You know, um, in 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 later issues, you'll get a team of Wolverine. Thing La Peregrine from France against um, Angel and and uh, Vanguard and Black Panther. I mean, who doesn't want that fight? Okay, these are great, great battles. But this was originally intended to be a Treasury edition. You've heard me talk about the giant size, the 12 inch by 15 inch Mega back in the day. Life magazine. This was the size. These bigger comic books. This was supposed to be. Contest of Champions was from its inception going to be a tie-in with the 1980 Olympic Games. Marvel had decided that they would tie in this giant event that would reflect when DC Comics once every summer would have the Justice Society of America team up with the Justice League. So you'd get like one 
the older version of the Justice League teaming up with the modern version of the Justice League. The Justice Society had an older Green Lantern. We had the new Green Lantern. It's Alan Scott. It's Hal Jordan. They had Dr. Fate. We had, you know, Batman. So this is kind of this this competitive uh, team-up nature is kind of, I think, what they were framing this on. But it was intended to be and conceived as a tie-in for the 1980 Olympics, a giant 60-page one-shot that would be a giant tabloid edition. Um, Mark, uh, Bill Mantlo jammed on the story with his editors, uh, Tom DeFalco and Mark Grunewald, and they knocked out the basic plot. They gave it to young John Romita Jr., who was you know, tearing up Iron Man at the time, and he started to draw it in late 1979, the same time he was doing Iron Man. Obviously, John Romita Jr.'s dad, John Romita Sr., is godfather of one of the greatest runs uh, ever on Spider-Man. At this time, he's the art director. I mean, his son could hit his marks, hit his deadlines. You know, this was this was just a, a, a fantastic, um, you know, fam family lineage in, in comics. John Romita Jr. has drawn this first giant-sized Marvel crossover that's intended to be this one shot that celebrates the 1980 Olympics. All was going well. Apparently, J.R., John Romita Jr., had done about 50 pages of this story. They had been mailed off to Pablo Marcos, who was going to ink the crap out of this because he's so ridiculously amazing. Great polish in those inks, man. Everybody he always touched. He, the faces got more handsome, and this goes for Byrne and Perez and everybody he touched. And the, the figures were more chiseled. He was just, because he was a competent, amazing artist in his own right. He does the finishes, except here's the one little trick. The United States pulled out of the 1980 Olympics. Oops. Um, yeah, we were boycotting. 1980, no USA. No USA. Okay? So, didn't really make sense to Marvel that they would be publishing this tabloid treasury edition special with their superheroes getting together to compete uh, in 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 conjunction with the Olympics, because the country where Marvel was housed, again as it says, the parent kind of company based in the United States, when the United States is not producing, participating in the Olympics, they are no longer going to do an Olympic tie-in book. So they kind of power down on the project, and everybody moves on to something else. Jr. John Romita Jr. goes back to doing Iron Man. Everybody kind of re-addresses re kind of their regular assignments at this time. Again, Bill Mantlo is cranking it on Micronauts, on Rom, on Hulk. Except nobody told Pablo Marcos to stop inking the pages. This is 100% as this story is retold by Marvel. Um, Pablo had inked all 50 pages that he was given, and he mailed them in. Guy, you know, look, I've, I've been there. I'm that guy. Uh, I have about six or seven unpublished stories, but I was paid for them. Marvel has maybe close to 160 unpublished pages by me across one miniseries that they've never published called Kill Raven, and then a couple of fill-in jobs on New Mutants that never were completed because I was called away. So I have 16 pages of one thing, 10 of another, 110 of another. Anyway, but I got paid for them. You want to get paid. You did the work. You want to get compensated. Pablo mails these in. They arrive. Oh my gosh. Nobody told Pablo's Marcos that they were no, not doing this 
Olympic project anymore. Well, the assistant editor at the time was Mark Grunewald, who would go on to be one of the great uh, comic book editors and writers of all time. But this is early in Mark's career. He gets the pages. He goes, oh, my gosh. We forgot to tell Pablo. He goes to Jim Shooter, who is the editor-in-chief, and says, look, I think we can make this work. I think that we can break this up and do three issues instead of the format. Now, by this time, we are in 1981. I need to make note of this. This is no longer 1980. Um, this is 1981. So, I mean, they really didn't follow up with Pablo. They weren't pushing him on a deadline. And i got to be honest, the, the project probably benefits from it because it's really well done. Pablo, the, John Romita Jr. drew big, giant figures, drew tons of action, drew tons of locales, and not an inch of it looks like it was rushed. It looks really, I mean, there's some work in this thing. And probably because Pablo was not on some rushed deadline, he poured so much detail. There are double pagers of the Avengers working out in here before they're summoned. The X-Men, these are just beautiful pages. And and you got to believe that that not pressing the finisher, the inker on this, was part of the reason this came in as, as, as great as it did. So they go to Jim Shooter and they propose that they make this, this three issues, publish it as a limited series. Jim Shooter, to his credit, immediately agreed, thought it was great, great way to maximize the fact that they have all these superheroes in a giant competitive battle. Because, come on, guys, that's what, that, that's just, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. That is all the sugar that any kid wants to consume. So they, uh, they put it out uh, in 1982 because 60 pages is two issues worth. They commissioned John Romita to finish it. He did the third issue. They wrapped it up. And they released it in the summer of 82. And uh, the funny thing, the funniest side is readers flooded Marvel with mail because the uh, the wrong winner in the game was decided. Uh, you know, the, 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 the comic book ended in a tie both the Unknown and Grandmaster ended up with the same amount of victories and readers went back and counted who won each chapter and it ended up in a tie even on the story they gave the winner they gave the win to the Grandmaster but it wasn't three to one it was two to two and Marvel to their um, to their credit readdressed this in two annuals which we've talked about annuals they use this as an event they they uh, told readers this is how it was supposed to be that it ended in a tie just to get a sequel and they went off and did the uh, rest of this in a pair of Avengers annuals that wrapped it all up. And 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 because of that, we get this nice, handsome hardcover. It is a, uh, in case you ever want to order it off Amazon, it's a it's volume 5 of Marvel's premier classics. Not volume 5, volume 45 of Marvel's premier classics. It's called Avengers The Contest. So it was a lot of fun. You got a lot of heroes knocking heads. Um, you know, trying to trick the two guys who manipulated them all with the whole world hanging in the balance. But the gathering of the heroes, the selecting of them, the pulling them into each of their different realms, and them all assembled under one kind of giant cosmic hangar is very, very visually and conceptually uh, identical to what we're going to see in 1985's Crisis on Infinite Earths, the mojo, the mother of all DC crossovers. But that is just where... Uh, we get tickled with crossovers because as um, Marvel uh, says in the foreword to this, um, and you know, guys, again, I didn't know this was an Olympics thing. I just remember when it showed up in 1982. Hey, cool. Brand new comic by a great 
created team. I loved everything Bill Mantlo wrote. I was following John Romita Jr.'s career. Boom. Now I got all these superheroes fighting each other. When you look at these covers, again, you know, these covers are great. All the superheroes are fighting each other or gathered together on every cover. It is, of course, it was a great seller. And, and you know, the, uh, the, the, the bottom line is this thing sold like hotcakes. And Marvel saw, man, there, there's some juice here. Um, there is some incredible success here. They, 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 Tom DeFalco recalls just how well this thing sold. And if you don't think they're paying attention, wait. So the superheroes together, that, that, that's a formula, okay? So that is summer of 82. Well, what would happen in the years post in, in, in about 83, 84, we get the crossovers that are going to define the age. They're being developed. Secret Wars from Marvel, which gathers all your favorite X-Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Both company-wide crossovers. Secret Wars gets out ahead. Crisis follows. I think Crisis is probably the one that people remember as being more polished. Um, I, I'll hand it. It's, it's, it is the more uh, re realized and more uh, celebrated of the crossovers. Secret Wars is the more successful because I think it just stays at its base. It, it, it never forgets what it is. It, it is Secret Wars is just how to have this great time. But where did it come from? It's, it's a product of a toy tie-in. This is absolutely the, the, the tail wagging the dog as, um, you know, both Tom DeFalco and his foreword to the Secret Wars uh, omnibus, which I highly recommend. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful. The entire package, all in one, and uh, it, 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 it is just such a handsome package. It has one or two of the crossovers, but the original Secret Wars, if you get it in singles, trade paperback, hardcover, omnibus, doesn't matter. It, it's great. Tom DeFalco opens up saying, it's ironic that the reason you're holding this book is because of our dreaded competition. They would always call DC something, their dire competition, dreaded competition, dynamic competition. But DC was discussing with Hasbro, or was it, it sorry, Kenner, Kenner Toys, Kenner, Kenner Toys was going to make a line of DC Comics action figures with play sets and they were putting a giant budget behind it. And uh, th this was the dawn of the war of action figures. A action figures were having a giant, um, they were having a big moment. The, 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 the success of the Star Wars toys and, and then uh, G.I. Joe and then Master of the Universe had created this giant, giant demand and this competition uh, between, between companies to, you know, sell as many boys, toys, action figures as possible. And I'm going to tell you, so being 12 or 13 at this time, 14, um, I was in the last days of roaming the toy aisles because you get, you know, suddenly I still love my comic books, but I loved, I love girls. And I like going out with girls and I like dates and double dates. And, you know, I, 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 I was in high school and football games and basketball games and studies. And I was moving more away from toys, comic books, 
were never something that I was giving up. The toys were um, something that I wasn't as embracing. I, I wasn't as addicted to them. And as you'll see, it, it cost a pretty penny. But oddly enough, like I never bought a Master of the Universe toy. I, I bought G.I. Joe when it first launched, 83-84, those resurgent toys because of my love of the existing G.I. Joe, the previous G.I. Joe in the 70s that the Kung Fu Grip, the Eagle Eye, that's what that I have a box with a G.I. Joe and it says Kung Fu, Kung Fu Grip on it. That's how it was labeled. Eagle Eye G.I. Joe, that's how it was labeled. So G.I. Joe, it was almost like, oh my gosh, look at this newfangled G.I. Joe. But that was pretty much the end of it. I was no longer getting any Star Wars action figures. But these Secret Wars toys would drive me back because of my desire to have action figures of the characters I liked. I mean, this was a Wolverine action figure. How else was I, was I going to get a Wolverine action figure? These, these were super cool. Well, so um, the road that led to Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars, the, the best-selling, one of the best-selling, especially when it came out, it was the best-selling comic book up until that point. What, what created it was because Kenner was licensing the DC Universe for their toy action figure line, which, which would be called Superpowers. And if you remember Superpowers, they had a number of Jack Kirby um, helmed, uh, illustrated comic books that, that were more kind of geared for kids. It was kind of Jack's final big work for corporate comics, and it revolved around Darkseid and all the fourth world villains, which was why you know Jack was so perfect. They even had a season where that it was reflected on the Super Friends, but Kenner was getting in bed with DC to make all of these toys with playsets and you know really refined, beautiful toys. While Secret Wars had the better comic books, I will tell you the the Superpowers line of toys. Or I prefer those to the Secret Wars toys, even though I ended up buying both of them. Because, come on, there's a Cyborg action figure. Cyborg from the Teen Titans is getting an action figure. Not all the Titans, but Cyborg was, you know, was marked for this. So this is a very exciting time. But, so Mattel rings up Marvel. And Mattel says to Marvel, look, we want to do a line of toys based on your comic books. Because DC is doing it with Kenner. Flat out. We are calling you because our competition is going to put out DC Comics toys. Who knows? Maybe Mattel bid on it. I know for a fact when I was doing my own action figures in the 90s, Kent, uh, Hasbro and Mattel and a company called Playmates uh, bid on the license to have Youngblood, just like they bid on movie licenses. And Todd McFarlane eventually won the bid. He stepped in. He didn't want me going to the others. He wanted to keep as many of the image toys under one umbrella. So I, I know firsthand about the bidding process and it's exciting. Oh, we'll give you a million dollars. We'll give you $1.2 million. You know, especially the movie stuff is ridiculous. So Mattel probably won, uh, probably put a bid in because it was going around and Kenner won the rights, won the bids. So Mattel then runs to Marvel and says, we want to do a giant event. We want you to make a publication an event publication that reflects this toy line. We're going to launch it simultaneously. And Marvel, obviously, based on their successful Conscious of Champions, thought, this is a great idea. And, uh, you know, we we as fans knew that this was not a secret. Like, we knew the toys and the comics on both fronts were coming together. Superpowers toys were not a secret. Superpowers comic was, you know, a part of our collecting. Secret Wars it was a known fact. Toys are going to be coming out with comic books. But this is, I didn't know the extent to which this stuff 
was crafted and created. So you've got Mattel working with Marvel, and uh, they definitely wanted the word war in the title. You know, Star Wars, they, they, they want wars. We Wars tested the best with a focus group. And you guys, again, speaking of the toys, I have had my Youngblood toys because uh, one, one, one reason that Mattel didn't come in as strong on Youngblood is they made uh, sculpted, I got to hold them, a sculpted version of Youngblood sh uh, from Youngblood Shaft, Chapel, and Prophet. And they gave them to kids to play in a room that only I got to observe through a two-way mirror, two-way window. So... And they told me, well, these kids liked them. They thought they looked cool, but they didn't have name value. Youngblood has no name value. And, and, and kids value name value. They thought they were interesting. Basically, they said they did a good job making the figures, which reflected my drawings. But, you know, was I going to have any media to back it up? Because that would make everything better. Of course, if I could have a cartoon show driving the sales. So, again, this toy stuff is fascinating. So, the word war, no surprise to anybody, tests the best. And they eventually come that Secret lines up best with Wars. So the reason it's called Secret Wars is because of Star Wars, because Wars is a big deal with kids, and kids focus tested with Mattel said Wars was a uh, something that, that that would get their attention if a toy line was out that had Wars in it, they'd give it a look. Okay, so thank God for focus test groups. That that stuff is fun to watch. I've I've participated in it. I've seen how the data comes back. This is great. So Secret Wars is the banner. That's what they're on. Um, working under, but Mattel had a list of specific requirements for Marvel. They definitely wanted Doctor Doom, but they wanted a uh, streamlined Doctor Doom. They said that they believed, based on, again, focus tests, he looks too medieval with his big cape and his cowl, and they wanted him streamlined. They wanted his armor uh, more juiced up, more more modern, uh, with a little more uh, focus on, on the techno aspects, which is why you get the the different armor that Doom has on this different planet where this is going to take place. They also needed Iron Man to be more high-tech, so Mattel is definitely informing Marvel how they want these characters to be reflected because, again, Mattel is basically telling Marvel, we're going to write a big check. We're going to make tons of plastic that has Marvel on it and your characters. So this is, this is where our money's going, and that benefits you, so you're going to reflect what we want because we're writing the bigger check here. We're having, trust me, when it comes to action figures... When you conceive of an action figure, it generally takes the better part of a year because you go into uh, conception, so then there's the design and drawings, then you go into the tooling, and tooling is which 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 joints does are are, are the wrists gonna move, are the fingers gonna move, the elbows gonna move, the knees, you get is this eight points of uh eight points of articulation, twelve points of articulation, twenty-four points of articulation. So then they send it off and it gets manufactured, tooled, it gets uh it, it, it gets packaged, you know, you got to package it and then you got to ship it. You got to put it on the boats that then take, you know, six weeks, two months to get over here. And because that includes the stop at whichever harbor in New York or LA, Long Beach here in Southern California, they're going to sit there. They're going to be dispersed on trucks and then driven all the different toy outlets. So that is why from concept to in your hands is minimum a year. Again, been there, done that, know how this works. This is so fascinating. So, uh, here we go. We're off to the races. Marvel has their kind of uh, blueprint on how to uh, be a great partner with Mattel and do these Secret War, the Secret Wars event, which will be a comic and toys. And they're going to do play sets, man. They're going to do big, expensive play sets. 
They're going to do um, vehicles. I mean, this is across the board. Mattel is throwing a ton of money. And probably like any good competitor, they wanted to bury the superpowers line from Kenner. They're, they're, they're battling for pegs. Todd McFarlane with his, with his toy company taught me about end caps and how they're bought. When you go to Target and there's something on the end cap, that was an arrangement with the toy company and the uh, the, the 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 store. Uh, you know your your outlet, your retail outlet negotiates. Well, these are more expensive because end caps get our attention, and so the discounts are better. the The, the store is going to make more off the figure because they're giving you the end cap, and then every peg is negotiated. The reasons why certain toys get three rows of pegs. Six pegs up, three pegs across is because that is pre-negotiated. Nothing is by accident. That is real estate in your retail outlet. So you got Mattel battling Kenner. They got real estate. They got action figures. Toys R Us at the time, all the toy stores, Walmart, Target. So, uh, you know, they, uh, Mattel then works in conjunction with Marvel and they got to pick a writer. And so Jim Shooter, who is a great writer, he came into the business writing, youngest writer on record, wrote uh, issues of the Le Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes from his house as a teenager, submitted plots. They were so good. They got published. This is real. This, he is a teen, like teen wonder kind. I mean, just amazing what he accomplished. And uh, so he wrote Secret Wars. And I was excited when it came out because he's so, he, he was a great writer. He's, he has written my favorite Avengers comics, period. End of story. The... Ultron Saga, Bride of Ultron, the Korvac Saga, about a year and a half's worth, Count Nefaria, Graviton. My favorite Avengers stories were under Jim Shooter's pen. The, 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 the Avengers were, were never realer. They, they never had the, be, the, be, the better characterizations, the personal demons, the consequences, the villains. Jim could do this. But he says that the reason he had to be the guy, and this just makes all the sense in the world. He's the editor-in-chief at the time, Okay. And the reason he picked himself to write it to his by his own, you know, admission here in on, on in his own memoirs, he tells you that because writers are incredibly uh, possessive of their characters, and this is 100% true. At the time, he cites a specific incident. Chris Claremont put Doctor Doom in three issues of the X Men, and he had Doctor Doom act in a certain way. And there's a character named Arcade who ran a murder arcade and these murderous mazes. Arcade is kind of this, uh, kind of a, not quite a Joker, but a Joker style character, a little bit insane. He's meeting with Dr. Doom and is very flippant and disrespectful to Dr. Doom and ends up lighting, strikes his match on Doom's armor and lights a cigarette and walks out. Well, Dr. Doom was a guest appearance in an X-Men title. Magneto is the domain, the, the domain of X-Men. Dr. Doom is the domain of the Fantastic Four. That's how Marvel editorial looks at it, how the writers look at it. So for three issues, Dr. Doom is in the X-Men. And, and it just so ties into the fact that John Byrne has left the X-Men. And these are the first post-John Byrne X-Men issues, post-storyline. And so Chris Claremont, who is now broken up with John Byrne in the X-Men, is using Dr. Doom in the X-Men. A little bit of a... that that that, that it, it, it feels... Like it, maybe a little personal tweak. The X Men was the number one book. Chris was using the using use, used to. He was used to getting what he wanted. John Byrne is now doing X Men, and he is 
I mean, is now doing the Fantastic Four. John Byrne has left X-Men, is now the writer and artist on the Fantastic Four title, and he is pissed off when he sees how Doctor Doom was portrayed. So what he does in a future issue, a few issues later, in the Fantastic Four, he shows that there's a scratch mark on one of his Doom ro robots. He had duplicate Doom robots, and he made reference to, oh, that was the robot that broke out and worked with Arcade, and that's why there's a, you know, a mark on his armor where a match was struck. And so John Byrne is basically revealing that, yeah, the Doctor Doom in that X-Men issue, those three issues of X-Men with Storm and, and, and the X-Men and that story you loved, that wasn't really Doctor Doom. That was just a rogue robot. That's not legit. Okay, that's the kind of pissing contest that were going on between these writers at the time. And Jim Shooter cites those incidents as how many of these writers, freelancers that Marvel had, could never be trusted with doing Secret Wars on their own. Because every other guy would be like, hey, he can't use Captain America like that. He can't use Spider-Man like that. So he can't use Thor like that, okay? A lot of he's because this was dominated by males at this time. This was very male-dominated business. If there had been a, there was maybe one or two female writers at the time. So when I say that he, he, it's Bill Mantlo and and it's Chris Claremont and it's it's John Byrne, um, you know, these, David Michelini, these are the guys who are getting all the assignments, getting the majority of the work. Each of these guys is doing three to four books for Marvel. So, so he determines that there is no way that we have time to make all these arguments. Secret Wars is going to be a 12-issue maxi-series. We're going way beyond Contest of Champions here. You're going to get all these superheroes together, and it's going to be 12 issues. And there's going to be double-sized issues. So, you know, strap in. This is a big commitment. And... So Jim believed that he was the best arbit arbiter to take this on. That as the editor-in-chief, no one's going to argue with him. He knows what's going on in every he, he knows what's going on in every single book. Um, he was the, the gatekeeper. He was the guy that had his finger on the pulse of every franchise. As the editor-in-chief, everybody answered to him. He knew what was going on for months in advance. So he was the perfect guy to pull off. Secret Wars. I loved it. Secret Wars was tested in a focus group. That is so awesome. So they eventually make, you know, the roster. It's going to be some Avengers, some X-Men, Spider-Man, Thor, you know, Captain America, your, 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 your big key characters. They, they divvy up the villains and uh, they're off to the races. And they uh, apparently, I think John Byrne and some others actually turned this assignment down because of the, 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 I think the, when you do something in conjunction with somebody like a Mattel, they're going to have approvals. They're going to have say-so. They're going to maybe say, hey, this this vehicle that we're trying to sell, we want that three-quarters of the page. And the artist has already drawn it and doesn't want to redraw it. So what where, where Jim ends up is with a fantastic artist named Mike Zek. The team that had been giving you Captain America, a beloved run on Captain America, a, a years-long run on Captain America, and they had done, Mike himself had done Master of... Kung Fu Shang-Chi, the movie that Marvel is making right now. Mike had done 40-plus issues of this comic. People loved Mike. He could do big, big, splashy, detailed stuff. He could do great action, great action choreography, great characterization. He did faces so beautifully. He was perfect. He was a great name. The minute I saw his name attached, I never thought that there was anybody but Mike Zek. Nobody's, nobody else got called but Mike Zek because Mike Zek is a big deal. He's my master of Kung Fu, best-selling artist. He's my Captain America artist. You know, now I know that he's going to be drawing all these characters together. And let me tell you guys, 
when that first promo for Secret Wars hits with Captain America bum-rushing you alongside the Avengers and the X-Men. I mean, what a cover. He is leading the charge, low center, Wolverine, you know, to his right, Cyclops blasting, Spider-Man swinging out in front, Holtz leaping at you, the thing. Uh, as far as covers go, Secret Wars may be one of the best just commercial images of superheroes ever. On the Omnibus, they had Alex Ross, the famed uh, acclaimed painter, literally paint Mike's, Mike's drawing. He, he literally painted Mike's depiction of this. And it is, uh, it's stunning. It, but, but the original by Mike is my favorite. You know, I, I, I might have just gone with Mike's because he, he did so much of the work. But uh, so, so Jim Shooter decides he's going to write this because he's the best arbiter. He can, you know, no one's going to fight with him. He works with the writers. He needs to know what's going on. And, and trust me, there's some big seminal, like, I know I say seminal stuff, but there's a lot of seminal stuff in the Bronze Era. And, 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 and one of them occurs as a result of this crossover. And they call it Marvel's first mega crossover. Uh, Jim Shooter is on record in his memoir saying it was incredibly successful. And post-Secret Wars, mega crossovers became the staple of comic book publishing. He cites that it was one of the most difficult tasks he ever had, but one of the most enjoyable, enjoyable things he's ever experienced. And, and without fail, Secret Wars is the number one thing that people ask him about and ask him to sign. Um, in the actual introduction to Secret Wars, which they did not ask Jim Shooter because Marvel is not on good terms with Jim Shooter, but the editor-in-chief in the 90s, Tom DeFalco, a swell guy, he writes that... Um, he opens it and closes it with, you can blame the dreaded competition for this. DC's the reason this happens. If DC's not doing superpowers with Kenner. We're not doing secret wars as a result of Mattel contacting us. Um, he also notes that the Secret Wars toy line was not anywhere near as successful as Mattel had hoped. It didn't get several rounds. Uh, superpowers went for further in terms of uh, extended life for the toys and the play sets. But as far as the comic book, it was their best-selling comic book Marvel had ever produced up until that time. And uh, Tom cites that it, ho it inspired a host of imitators. And he says, some of them have received critical acclaim and praise, and others have generated approval. Um, but the industry was never the same after Secret Wars. Now, here's the deal. Secret Wars, just so you guys know, the heroes are all contacted. They are all driven together by a mysterious being where cosmic beings, again, just like the unknown, just like the Grandmaster. These characters are assembled by the Beyonder. They are drawn, you know, uh, from Earth to this isolated world where they will battle under the auspices and the control and the direction of the powerful Beyonder. And uh, he basically promises the winners this ultimate prize and battle lines are drawn and new alliances are forged throughout and that's where you get some bad guys teaming with good guys and uh, and ultimately of course you've got dr doom who once he arrives says well i'm going to run this place i'm going to figure out you know how to best manipulate everything here and i am going to become the guy that uh that wins this ultimate challenge and the cover to secret wars 10 is one of my favorite dr doom covers ever it's mike zek and terry austin and doom's armor is shattered his his 
his hood and his kind of medieval gown is ripped to shreds. His body is exposed. Circuitry is dripping off of him. His hands are pulsating in energy. And uh, it is all because he re he figured out a way to draw energy from Galactus. Because Galactus is also, you know, arrives here. So you as a reader are like, wait, the Beyonder is so powerful that he can manipulate and draw Galactus into the fray? And um, as far as supervillains that were gathered, I mean, you had... You had some of Marvel's best and brightest. You had Kang the Conqueror, my personal favorite Avengers villain of all time, a Tom time-traveling warlord. You had Claw. You had the Molecule Man, Lizard. You had uh, the Wrecking Crew, which were, was a great bunch of really great guys for fisticuffs because they all had different crowbars and and they had chains. And you had you had uh, you had uh, um. The Absorbing Man. So all the heroes are assembled and all the villains are assembled. And really, right out the gate, they establish, uh, it's you guys against you guys. And I'm the Beyonder. I'm controlling everybody. They are once again gathered on a giant space platform in a giant cosmic arena. They are all informed by the Beyonder, by this voice, that, and by this world, this war world, that is assembled by pieces of other fragments of other worlds. This is where this is the environment that they are going to fight, that they are going to battle. They are informed by the Beyonder who tells them, I am from beyond. Slay your enemies and all your desires will be yours. Nothing you dream of is impossible for me to accomplish. And you got like guys on the low end of the villain thing, the members of the Wrecking Crew saying, he ain't lying. I can tell you, I, I, I can feel it. I can feel it. And uh, the great thing, and Jim is does some really cool stuff in this first issue. Galactus is like, nobody talks that way to Galactus. Like, that's cool. Of course Galactus isn't going to stand for it. And Dr. Doom's like, I must know what manner of foe we are facing. And they both fly right into the void and try and battle the Beyonder. And he tosses them aside and tosses them back as if they are nothing. And that is a great indicator to art. Even Magneto, you know, one of the most popular of among them, and Reed Richards, who go, uh, and Charles Xavier, who's among the X-Men. Um, oh boy, uh, this guy just took out Doom, and he took out Galactus. So what are the rest of us going to do? And just like Lost or Lord of the Flies, everybody decides, well, I'm not following you. And different alliances are made, and different heroes break off. And one of the most resonant, resonant's a good word, moments that occurs in the course of everybody finding their own lairs and finding their own bases and making their own uh, alliances. I mean, Rogue kind of falls in with Magneto, just, just giving you uh, along the way. It, like, like there's alliances. There are, there are, you know, guys who lose trust in each other and betrayals and people storm off. And the next thing, you know, the heroes that arrive there uh, are not cooperating. Now, Bob Layton, who uh, had done a lot of penciling for Marvel, uh, fills in on the issues that Mike Zek does not. Mike does the majority of the issues, maybe ten out of twelve, maybe 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 nine out of twelve. Um, but the one thing that's weird is there are so many. This did not reflect Mike Zek's strengths. Uh, I, I I can flip through almost all of issue uh, of of what which issue is this? I am flipping through nearly all of issue six. And I am telling you, issue eight 
and it is medium shot after medium shot after medium shot after medium shot. And what I mean by medium shot, so you, your close-up is tight on your face, right? Your far-away establishing shot is where you see your cityscapes or where your people are as big as ants before you close in on them. Your medium shot is where so much of your operation takes place. But without those close-ups, so your close-up and your further pullbacks, um, it, it takes away from the rhythm of the book. And I remember speaking to Mike Zek about this in the years since. And this is one of the reasons Mike did not enjoy this job and does not have great memories of this job is because Jim Shooter, as editor-in-chief, and this is kind of the beginning of this path for him, Jim had become a hotshot writer on the back of some incredible stories. Go look up Count Nefaria. Um, it's in the 160s of, of Marvel's Avengers. And uh, John Byrne, is, it's, it's vicious. It's, it's action-packed. This guy basically, Count Nefaria, gets the powers of Superman, and it's three issues of someone with Superman's power, except not Superman's moral code, viciously. It's a rich billionaire who, instead of dying, decides to adopt all these superpowers from different supervillains, and he becomes the equivalent of Superman and beats up on the Avengers, and it is brutal and violent, and and, and again, some of the heroes run away. They're, they're scared to confront him because... They don't want to die. Is this what it means? I mean, it's great stuff, but it's also got amazing visuals, splash pages, big, big moments by John Byrne. Jim Shooter would also do this with George Perez in stories with some of their best villains, Ultron, this cosmic entity known as Korvac. But on Secret Wars, so many medium shots. And it turns out this was by specific direction by Jim Shooter, who basically told Mike Zek, I want the camera held back so that basically you're getting every shot, the majority of shots in this book, especially as the series progresses and goes forward, and it's the same for the Bob Layton issues, are, you know, everybody on the page is about an inch and a half, inch and a half, inch and a half, going through here right now, Captain America, Human Torch, Ultron, you can just kind of, and, and, and there's not a lot of variation, the camera doesn't move in, Jim didn't want that, he wanted as many characters interacting in a panel as possible, that was by editorial edict, he did not want a lot of close-ups. And if close-ups and character and facial detail is what you're after, you are not going to get them in this book. This book is, again, on any given page, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve characters standing next to each other. In this uh, panel on uh, in page ten, I've got Magneto, Captain America, Thing, Hulk, Reed Richards, Spider-Man, uh, Thor, Storm, Professor Xavier, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler all in one panel. And they are all talking and the page before that, there are more panels like that. And the page before that, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten characters in one panel. Um, he is definitely wanting to uh, show these characters. This is what Jim Shooter believed was essential to selling the comic. The last page of page ten has two panels. They are both the cameras pulled back equivalent equally. Now, don't tell me Mike Zett didn't want to zoom in. He does. He's a master storyteller, master of Kung Fu, and, and Captain America showed that this guy goes to his own rhythm. He does beautiful faces. There's no reason he's not doing rich, textured faces, detailed emotion, rendering. Mike Zett could render with the best of them. These two panels, the last page of page, the last page in issue 10, the top panel has Storm, Hulk, Human Torch, Reed Richards, Cyclops, Iron Man, Spider-Woman, Colossus, Professor Xavier, Captain America, Wolverine, Spider-Man, Rogue, Thing, Thor, Hawkeye. Looking up, it's a downshot. They're all fit in that panel from pretty much foot to the top of their head, head to toe. And then the 
panel below them is even more pulled back as Reed Richards, Thor, Human Torch, Hulk, Captain America, The Thing, and Professor Xavier face Doctor Doom. Uh, there is The camera is the same distance. It is literally, this camera is pulled back so often, and I believe Jim was trying to show us how these action figures would interact with each other, or maybe we're going to find out that it was an edict from Mattel to Jim Shooter. But it is not as resonant because of the specific direction and production. There is a panel where Wolverine is popping his claws in, in page 10 that is not exciting because you can tell if Mike Zeckler was left to his own power, we would be closer on Wolverine's snarl. The claws, it is a medium shot. This book is built on medium shots. Now, Jim Shooter is going to believe uh, that this was 100% the right way to go because this book was so successful. You got to see lots of characters interacting all the time. And um, I think he believes that on uh, that 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 is part of the success. You're going to buy a toy line. You need to see these toys interacting all the time. I mean, I am flipping through this hardcover right now. This is a comic book built on medium shots. And you guys, how many times do we love that dramatic move in on the face? That dramatic, uh, uh, you know pulling from far away to close up the snarl, the nose, the upshot, the downshot, worm's eye view, um, uh, you know, bird's eye view, the lowest possible angle, the, the highest possible angle. That is lost here. You are not going to find that. This entire book is shot at medium range and the camera is mostly always in front of the characters. The characters do not deviate from the camera being placed right at center and pulled back so far that they are from head to toe in every panel, from head to toe. Now here's one of the kickers in terms of the artwork that, again, somebody like me who I've already detailed, this, this dovetails perfectly with my last podcast about Art Adams. Now there's also, you'd think a book called Secret Wars with all these characters would have these killer big double pagers. It doesn't. It does not have the giant moments that you would come to expect. Crisis on Infinite Earths would come after Secret Wars, and George Perez flexed as hard as I've seen any artist flex. And it is uh, chock full of all the moments that I'm talking about, close-ups, detail, faces. It moves different. This is an artist that is shackled, that has been the handcuffs have put on artistically to do exactly as he is directed by the editor-in-chief. Now, as I understand it, because of royalties, there is no doubt in my mind this book was the most profitable thing Mike Zek ever worked on because it was the Marvel, Marvel's top-selling book. But the artistic hindrance is now I understand why as a kid it just didn't have the same oomph. Really, Secret Wars, the best thing about it is the covers, but we cannot... Um, uh, the Art Adams part, in, in, the, in issue 12, it's double-sized. And there are a couple pages that Art Adams inks over Mike Zek, and they're wonderful because they're probably Mike Zek layouts. But if you were to look at them in issue 12, one's got the Thing and um, She-Hulk, and one's got everybody battling the giant monsters. Art Adams inking Mike Zek on two pages is a treat. Seek it out. It's got a, a bit of a multi-hands job. Joe Rubenstein, Art Nichols, there's several other inkers who jump in to help. Anytime there was a double-sized issue at this point in time at Marvel, they would ink, uh, just pass the Joe Rubenstein page and Art Nichols pages. But the Art Adams pages, again, I can only imagine he was in the office and took these back with him. And his uh, Hulk hitting Ultron and the Thing and She-Hulk 
in my omnibus it's page 312 i don't know what it works out to in your uh, standalone issues but exciting stuff th th this is when oh she hulk and thing are both punching these these alien creatures they're they're kind of indecipherable alien creatures much like the broccoli people that phoenix uh destroy actually they look like blue versions of bro bro broccoli people which is why i'm having that recall but really nice pages here towards the end Secret War is an unabashed success. Part of the buzz about this book is on an alien planet, Spider-Man, who, and the cool thing, like the Fantastic Four, members of that book were gone uh, at different intervals, and Marvel would, would uh, like the thing never came back for a year, so She-Hulk actually ends up joining the Fantastic Four. This book had some interesting echoes. It didn't have a million spinoffs. It had a couple interactive interconnected chapters, but by no means was there six Avengers spinoffs, six X-Men spinoffs, six Spider-Man spinoffs. Secret War stood alone as a 12-issue as a giant toy marketing manual where our heroes battle each other and under the direction of, 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 of Jim Shooter, they did it pulled back all the way at medium shots, which is so weird when you have characters as dynamic as Galactus and as dynamic as, as Doctor Doom interacting and again, the Bob Layton stuff is directed the exact same way as as, uh, as the Mike Zek pencils. So the art is consistent. And and look, Jim Shooter gave us he took a he took a flyer and took a chance on Frank Miller. Gave him a sh chance to write as well as draw, which gave us the Daredevil run. He empowered John Byrne. You're unhappy on X Men? Okay, I'll give you Fantastic Four. You can write it. You can draw it. I'm going to give you your own series, Alpha Flight. You can write it. You can draw it. Walt Simonson. Hey, how you doing? Okay, you want to write and draw for? He empowered artists and made them writers. And to me, that is his greatest legacy. So I can't really bitch and complain when on this very specific toy-driven miniseries, he was so uh, hands-on. And, and, and an artist as brilliant as Mike Zek was drawing little figures all the time across 12 issues. And uh, one of the bigger splash issues is about what happens to Spider-Man. One of the bigger splash pages is... And, and we knew this because Marvel had their marketing team out in the, in the fan press and in the newsletters and in the posters. You knew that going into Secret Wars, in the middle of Secret Wars, Spider-Man would get a black costume with a giant white spider symbol. His traditional blue and red costume was gone. It would continue into his own comic because in the comics, the way they explain this is the characters were all blipped out for a month and then they all were returned. And the blip was the 12 issues. And the 12 issues is Secret Wars. So they got... To, that's why Spider-Man in the black costume is in his own comic in the black costume so quickly. They didn't want to wait 12 years to give it to you. You got it. And Secret Wars is where it all goes down. It was something planned by uh, Marvel Editorial and by Mattel. And it gave you two different Spider-Man figures. You got the black figure and you got the red and blue. Great. Maybe probably the most popular toy in two different versions. The beginning of variant action figures starts here. But Spider-Man on an alien world interacts with this, we understood as kids, this black goo. And the black goo crawls all over him. And the black goo is a symbiote. And that, it made his spider sense tingle. And suddenly it crawls on him. And it's a great fashion designer because it wipes out his blue and red elements. And now he is head to toe in black. His eyes are white. He has a giant white spider, and it's a three-quarters, uh, three-quarter splash page. So the biggest splash image in pages. Maybe it's clearly the biggest image in the issue. He says, "Well, I'll feel like an uncle's eight ball." 
that black glob just spread out and became my costume dissolved away the tatters of my old one not bad different but not bad i wonder why it didn't come out like my old one that's what i was thinking of the beginning of venom right here in secret wars 8 the beginning of venom this is the symbiote this is the symbiote this would change the way spider-man looks from issue 8 on down through the remainder of the series he would wear the black costume in his Spider-Man titles. In the monthly books, people dug it. I dug it. It was great. It's one of the great uh, shifts. It's one of the great character uh, designs, redesigns, uh, I think, in the history of comics. It worked. He got an action figure out of it. This was exciting. Um, you know, Spider-Man's new costume is easily the longest-lasting result of Secret Wars. Uh, it debuted simultaneously or alongside Secret Wars. It debuted in Amazing Spider-Man 252. And uh, he went right back into action. And, you know, gaining this, this uh, you know, black costume from Battle World. And uh, he was in the pages of Marvel Team-Up, Spectacular Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man. This was now his costume. Um, they would ex explore this the black glob, as 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 Spider-Man calls him, being this symbiote that has attached itself to Peter Parker. It made him start acting a little dark. Uh, there's not a very uh, Spider-Man three by Sam Raimi does not pull this off as 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 well as as one would have hoped. Um, I love Spider-Man one and two. Three was I guess too many cooks in the kitchen. I'm not crazy about the depiction of Venom in that movie, um, but they they dealt with how it made him dark and. Uh, symbiote could separate from his body it was an alien entity they have now gone on to give him an even expanded version of his origin uh tying him to a space god so so 30 years later they would continue to build on the stuff that you got here in secret wars which made marvel a ton of money the irony like i said is that the toys were not seen as successful they went away very quickly, but I went back to toys, the toy stores to get those. Dr. Doom did lose the long cape and flowing gown and had a tighter version of his costume. And those toys were, they seemed like they all had kind of one body type. They didn't have a lot of articulation. Um, the Superpowers toys were the better toys. Superpowers uh, was an obvious, uh, more kind of child-friendly than this uh, th than this was. The conflicts were, were less... Uh, adult it was very much again let's get everybody together and fight conscious of champions let's get everybody in fight a uh, uh, comic about the uh, about the olympics can no longer be about the olympics because the united states is out of the olympics goes on to be this cool miniseries sells a gazillion copies marvel is approached by mattel they make the secret wars toys and the comic and it is a huge hit crisis on infinite earths which Crisis on Infinite um, such a such, such a mouthful. Crisis on Infinite Earths is by DC's top selling team, where this is a, an A list team. Jim Shooter, Mike Zek, John Beatty, these are A list creators giving you Secret Wars. But George Perez and Marv Wolfman were the guys who turned DC around and gave them their biggest success. I'm not going to dwell a lot on Crisis. It's going to come in. It's going to come out. It was its purpose was to reshape the DC universe. I've mentioned before. I grew up, I just, you just accept it as a kid, or, or you don't, I guess, but as a kid, when I first encountered those early, what I 
what I mentioned about the Justice League and the Justice Society getting together and teaming up once a year, the Justice Society in the DC Universe was on Earth 2. Earth 2. And once a year they would come visit Earth 1, where our heroes, Justice, the, 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 the Justice League and the Batman and the Superman that we knew, the modern versions were on Earth 1. They even had Earth 3. They had, like, I think there's an Earth Z. There was a lot of multiple Earths. That's why it's called Crisis on Infinite Earths. And the crisis... This uh, this this force starts wiping out everyone's world, whittling down everyone's existence, and everyone is summoned again to a giant arena. And uh, everyone must uh, figure out how to fend off this giant foe like a Beyonder, like a Grandmaster. Um, and uh, it, it, it was really a show a showpiece for George Perez. And uh, and and Marv Wolfman to do this sweeping sweeping saga, and George took it that he would personally, uh, you know, uh, craft this epic, draw every issue. It, it's it's amazing. It's outstanding. It gives you all the dream team ups. They Secret Wars, Crisis, Contest of Champions. They all function on your basic. Hey man, I want to see these characters team up. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to experience. George was one of the, if not the biggest name in the business at the time. Marv was one of the, if not the biggest, in 1984-85. Titans was a monster hit. Turned around all of the fortunes of DC Comics. They were doing two Titans books. Again, they were rewarded. Crisis is a is a emotional story. They killed Flash. They killed Supergirl. I think that's what set it apart from Secret Wars. Although the black costume on Spider-Man is a huge deal. But... There was more consequences. And the whole idea of Christ on Infinite Earth was that now when it's done, everything is one one world. No more Infinite Earths. We now have one existence and no more jumping from this Earth to that Earth. And honestly, it was undone fairly quickly in my mind. Um, but it opened up paths for what would become John Byrne's arrival on Superman, which is an upcoming podcast that is going to be a blast. Because crossing the streets, crossing the street from Marvel to DC, John Byrne, the other A-list powerhouse, goes over and Crisis kicked down the door, opened the portal for a new Superman to exist, a reboot. So there were some hard reboots that came out of Crisis. It's a great story. It's got great arcs. You're rooting for everybody along the way. It's um, it's it's more complicated, whereas Beyonder put the Marvel superheroes and the supervillains on a world and said, fight each other. And whoever wins, I will bestow my power on you. We do not have time to cover Secret Wars 2 today, and we will. But in the last uh, moments that we have together here, the thing is, the success of both these titles, Crisis, bestseller. Secret Wars, bestseller. Contest of Champions before that, bestseller. The industry changed. Once a year, we would get crossovers. Then it would be twice a year. Then it would be three years. Uh, after Crisis, you get Legends, which is great. It's a it's it's a more contained six issue. All revolves around Darkseid. It's John Byrne. It's John Ostrander. It's great. I love it. It's it gave us a brand new Justice League. That's the big the big achievement of Legends. We got Millennium. We got Invasion. All of these giant, and we're talking posters, you know, door hangers. Flyers. The companies would invest in this. What did you get out of Marvel? You got Secret Wars 2, okay? Then you got, later on, you got, you know, Atlantis Attacks. 
you know, you, 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 you got what would come to be fast forwarding civil war. You got house of X modern day. Um, this summer Marvel is doing empire. I have no idea how many parts is involved in empire, but increasingly these crossovers become more and more and more, um, just spanning across the titles. I want to say untenable because I can't collect them all. I don't know about you, but I don't, I can't, I, I cherry pick which ones I'm going to grab because I don't need 25 uh, tie-in issues. Out of one of, out of 25, one or two of them are going to matter, are going to resonate. That's just how it goes. Um, you know, you, 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 it's just the, the, these crossovers became the corporation's way of taking over. All because of two toys, superpowers, and secret wars. Mattel and Kenner set us on this path. Two toy companies, competing toy companies, end caps, pegs, plastic figures created the door, opened the door for Marvel to go, whoa, so if we get the heroes together and we pit them, you know, at odds with each other, then people will show up and it's not really about the uh, the creative teams. I think Marvel did a huge crossover called Acts of Vengeance. All the villains got together to take out all of the heroes. Hello? Who's not buying that? They had a great John Byrne advertisement. All the villains, you know, in the shadows. Kingpin, Doctor Doom, arms crossed. Acts of Vengeance. Okay, I'm in. Punisher was Acts of Vengeance. Ghost Rider was Acts of Vengeance. Spider-Man, both books, Acts of Vengeance. You know, the X-Men family. The Avengers was Acts of Vengeance. Everyone was Acts of Vengeance. Um, the X-Men family would then also start incorporating... And, and we love these. These were really well-crafted. They were much more contained. Fall of the Mutants. Inferno. Extinction Agenda. And uh, you guys, the crossovers are guaranteed moneymakers. That's why they're still doing them. I have heard creators. I have heard retailers. Maybe I myself at one time have bemoaned them. Why don't we stop them? I'll tell you why they don't stop. Because without fail, we always show up. We always think they're going to deliver for us. Civil War is the best of the recent in my memory, because it had a lot of big moments. Spider-Man unmasked himself to the public for all to see uh, 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 something that, that Tony Stark would stage. Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark and Iron Man one at the end by telling everybody he was Iron Man. That, that That's exactly ripped from the pages of Civil War years before when Spider-Man uh, reveals that he's Peter Parker. Um, the, the, these, these giant Civil War, again, you got Thor's team versus... Caps team. What is it at the end of the day? It's a superhero throwdown. Team those superheroes up, put them together. You guys, I told you I got my Secret Wars action figures. It brought me back to the toy store after not being in the toy store for a long time. And even now, my shelves are dotted and lined with action figures. I have run out of room. My shelves are X-Force characters, Cable, Deadpool, Shatterstar, Domino, all the iterations, all the variants. And do I sometimes wish that I had time to go out as a 52-year-old man to the backyard and and, and, and get a, a nice cozy piece of uh, real estate between the grass and the rock formations and the sand and pit these characters against each other? Do I... Okay, uh, the answer is yes. Yes, I do. I haven't yet. When that happens, we'll film it. We'll, we'll make me look like a buffoon. Do I look at these characters and in my mind, I, I want to see, you know, the Mezco cable taken on the uh, Diamond Select cable and they're both taken on the hot toys version of Deadpool? Of course I do. 
Do I want to see, you know, the Hasbro line of X-Force take on the Mezco line of X-Force? Yeah, that's all we do. That's all we're the, the, If you're listening to this, you're into this stuff. So you get it. You get what I'm saying. This is what we do. Um, so Secret Wars, Civil War. I love, don't you love that war? War is kid-tested, mother-approved. Um, thank you, George Lucas. It, it just, his impact is so ridiculously resonant. We're going to have to do like a mini-series on him. So, will we cover in greater detail some of these? We're going to do Secret Wars too because it is, I, it may actually turn out being as um, successful as Secret Wars in some ways because they learned their lesson. When they came back with Secret Wars 2, they did in fact plug it into everything. There was all sorts of tie-ins. All the tie-ins I said that Secret Wars didn't have, Secret Wars did have. But what these crossovers gave was guaranteed dates on the calendar that you could put your characters together in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, make an event, Atlantis attacks. All of the underwater characters are attacking. The space characters are attacking. Um, you know, the villains are teaming up. And we would show up with our dollars every time because it's irresistible. It's the catnip to the comic book reader. And it all started with Kenner and Mattel having a superhero pissing match because boys' action figures were blowing up and they needed as many entries in the derby as possible. How great is this? This was one of my funnest recollections. Grab Secret Wars. Check it out. You'll see. Look at Master of Kung Fu by Shang-Chi. Look at Captain America. I think they're doing a, a collection of Mike Zex again. They've had a number of them, but I read they're doing a new epic collection. You check those out. You tell me. Mike Zek can't go in for the detailed, juicy, up-close, just torso shots. just Not just face shots. Just tighter shots. This guy was kept at a medium shot the whole time. It was it was by design. Jim Shooter would later put this into action on his entire line of books. Everything at Valiant, the camera was medium-sized when he was running the show. He believed in this aspect of storytelling. It was definitely a very deliberate, stylish approach. Check it out. Crisis is collected on Infinite Earths. It's great. Secret Wars. Contest of Champions, where it all started with the canceled Olympics comic book. We had so much fun today. Thank you for hanging with me on social media. Seek me out. Find me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Robert Liefeld, the full name. I couldn't get Rob. Somebody got it first. I've been on there for 12 years. I wasn't fast enough. At Robert Liefeld on Twitter. At Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Seek me out. Look me Look me up. I'm on social media. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much for all of the love and the positivity you guys are sending my way. I see that you're hearing about Ronan and you're buying Frank Miller's Ronan. And I cannot tell you how much that excites me. I love sharing this stuff with you guys. I love that you guys are listening and interacting. Thank you again. Take care. I will see you and talk to you again soon.